Welcome to the Global Business School Network podcast. I'm Rob Vimber, and this is the first installment of our brand new podcast series. The Global Business School Network is comprised of over 100 business schools in 50 countries across six continents. We're a purpose-driven network organization, and that purpose is to improve management and entrepreneurial skills in the developing world. Our first series of podcasts deals with the world after COVID-19. What's the world that we're looking to develop, that we're looking to create, the world that we're looking to find once we've moved through the current global pandemic? To explain this in more detail, here's GBSN's CEO, Dan LeClaire. We're doing this project, the World After COVID-19 project, for two very simple reasons. The first is that it's very difficult for leaders, leaders in the moment, to lift their heads out of day-to-day operations and to look ahead and to imagine a world after the current crisis subsides. And for us to tap into our network, to gather insights and to synthesize those insights in a way that's meaningful and relevant to decision makers today, well, we think that's a helpful service. The second reason is even more important, and that is unless we take the time to look ahead and to imagine the world that may naturally come from our choices today, then we'll never be able to understand the world that we want to come from all of this and the decisions and the choices that we need to make today in order to make that world a reality for the future. Dan, together with GBSN Board Chairman Sumitra Dutta, engaged deans from 15 leading business schools across the globe to delve into their opinions about our collective futures. Our first conversation is with the Peter Moores Dean at Oxford University's Said Business School, Peter Tufano. The question we'd like to start with is a very broad one. Mm-hmm. Do you see this, what's happening right now with Uh, COVID-19 in 2020 as a turning point, if we were to look ahead, um, you know, beyond coronavirus, do you see this as a turning point for the world, for for business, for for higher education? Um, So everybody always thinks that um, the world is going to change dramatically. if you think about you know 1999 and 2000 and you know the digital world was going to change dramatically it didn't but then it did um and then the financial crisis the world was going to change dramatically and then it didn't um this one i think is probably at least in you know my history uh the most profound thing that's happened and so if any world event will change business and society in a material way, I think this has the chance to do that. So the probabilities are higher for this than any other systemic uh, issue that we've faced. Um, not, not higher than any systemic issue we may face, including climate change, but uh, this one has come on with such rapidity that perhaps um, it will give rise to a change in collective consciousness will, that will lead to lasting change. Peter, could you just sort of go into the main dimensions of change that you see, you know, uh, 
on the dimensions of you know, angles of government, business, and society? Yeah. Let's start with business because that's what we do for a living. Um, just a few months ago, at the end of the summer, you may recall that in the U.S., a number of companies um, signed this business roundtable statement. And then a few months later at Davos, the Davos Manifesto was penned. Uh, and in both cases, businesses profess this undying uh, support for stakeholder capitalism. And I can recall specifically at one of those events in January, I, and I, not because I'm smarter, but I simply asked the question, what happens when markets turn down and things get bad? You know, how, how resolute are we with respect to this commitment to purpose? Uh, and I think that's the question for business. So are we gonna see a return to business as normal? Uh, kind of a retrenchment of business as normal, or will we see something that's dramatically different, that this is in fact the thing that will leap us over to um, really thinking about stakeholders more broadly, where those stakeholders include customers and employees and suppliers and the environment and communities. To me, and I've just been trying to write something up, um, an interesting, I think, bellwether of that is this dividend question. Right now, U.S. corporate dividends are about half a trillion dollars a year. And there's a lot of hand-wringing about whether companies should cut their dividends. Um, in a stakeholder capitalism world, I think you'd ask the question, you know, who needs these resources most of our stakeholders? Should we kind of invest in our employees? Should we invest in our customers? Should we continue to hold fast to paying our, our shareholders the same amount of money we've always paid them? Um, I think it's gonna be an interesting little case study or test. Um, so on the business side, I think we're going to find out whether or not this commitment to stakeholder capitalism is real. On the government side, you know, uh, I think this is, this is uh, demonstrating the cracks in international systems and, you know, the talk of multilateralism is, is being strained dramatically. Um, I'd like to say that when we come out of this, that in much the same way that we came out of World War II, there'll be new bonds that are formed. Um, but if we compare World War I and World War II, the peace in World War I was not a successful peace. The peace in World War II was a successful peace. And I've, I'll send you, Sumitra, a piece that, uh, or both of you, a piece that I've written that is uh, similar to what I talked about when we got together, which is about winning the war and winning the peace. So what I'm hoping um, is that we focus on winning the peace here, which is not only about finding national prosperity and household prosperity, but global prosperity. Um, I fear that it will be more like a World War I outcome where we ignore the global prosperity, worry about household, worry about national, and we exacerbate the differences. In terms of society, um, I think that's interesting too. I think if uh, the populace sees that governments and businesses are doing what they uh, have said they were going to do all along, that people's trust in business and government will go up. And if they see that they're being abandoned, it will go down. So that's why I don't know which way it will go, but I think that it's, it's hard to think that, you know, we'll be left out, let out of our lockdowns or, sh or sheltering place and everything will just seem normal again. Um, and we haven't gotten to the micro things about working at home and all that kind of stuff. So I was just trying to focus on the macro stuff. So, Peter, on the macro stuff, you know, you raised the issue of World War I, World War II. After World War II, uh, there were some, you know, clear global leadership and global mm -hmm. mechanisms to coordinate. And today, a lot of that seems to be missing, you know, both globally and also at the European level. Yep. So, I'm just curious, you know, how do you see this globalization 
going forward? Is it really going to happen, a decoupling? Is it really going to happen, you know, a questioning of European Union and Commission, what they do? I mean, what, what's your view on the macro picture in more depth? I guess it depends in part on your time frame. So, you know, in the next 12 months, do I see a strengthening of multilateral organizations? No. Um, over the next two or three election cycles, might that po be possible um, when, you know, when different leaders take control, we hope, in different countries? I think there is the possibility. Um, the problem is, is that the impetus for doing that, which is to see a successful collaborative, act, collaborative uh, attack against COVID-19 um, being led across multiple countries, we've lost the opportunity to do that. And I fear that the collaboration that could be manifested in an economic uh, recovery that is more than at the country level uh, might also not do that. So to me, I'm not sure that this will give rise to that kind of, you know, reinvigoration of, of uh, these organizations or new ones, but maybe this with some new leaders and then oriented around things like climate, maybe there's some chance that that might happen. What about the rise of Asia? You know, it's been happening for some time. Do you think China's role and Asia's role in particular will be accelerated in the global stage and what implications will that have for the way we you know, see the world evolving? I think it's, we've already seen it happen. We continue to see it happen and I don't think that that is gonna materially change. Uh, so you know, it's partially a function of economics, it's partially a function of you know, kind of purchasing power, uh, there's all sorts of things. So yes, of course China and Asia's role has become more important. Um, important in what? Um, important in global trade? Yeah, absolutely. In supply chains? Yep. Um, will there be attempts to maybe lessen the dependence, for example, in the U.S. on those supply chains? Yeah, I think under the current administration. And, and, and not just that, I think there'll be a recognition that, you know, you need robust supply chains and not, you know, the simple, relatively simple ones that in some uh, product lines we have. Um, how will that play out? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, there was a time when it looked like, you know, you know, when TPP was still a possibility um, that, again, we go back to that word multilateral, but a multilateral approach to for the West to deal with the East was more realistic, not just about trade, but around environmental issues and social issues and more. Um, I'm not seeing that's going to in the cards for, again, the next short term, but, uh, you know, perhaps over the long term. Um, another interesting question, which I don't have really a clue about is, you know, you talked about China, but India is also really interesting. Um, it seems to be moving in a direction that is, well, I don't understand, to be honest, um, economically and certainly not socially. So um, some of maybe the progress in India, I, I, I hope that it's, that this will accelerate that, but I'm not necessarily seeing it right now. Dan, please. We, we touched on uh, government, touched on business, and uh, we touched on society. How about education? How about higher education and business education? Mm -hmm. at, at a macro level, if we just stay macro for the time being, how do you yeah. see this uh, changing? 
so everybody and all the pundits are saying, oh, well, you know, we're all in line now and therefore, you know, we're never going to go back to face-to-face. I don't think that's true at all. Um, of, at least of my students, and I think of most students, they, they uh, sorely are missing, or they're, they're acknowledging that the, um, the experience that they have is far more than the transmission of knowledge. It was a paper, I don't know if it's a, it's a good paper, but that was reported in the Times of London today that purported to say that at least in terms of micro measures, in terms of out, uh, you know, performance on exams, that they didn't see any uh, difference between students who'd gone through in-person and online. Um, but you know, I haven't read the original paper, so I don't know. But I think that education is far more than that. So you know, will we all be much more comfortable with online? Sure. Um, will we probably be much more comfortable with blended approaches? Yes. Um, on the positive side, I think, I hope that the, this reminds people that there is a value of expertise, that the new vaccines and like the Jenner lab here at Oxford or Oxvent that's inventing new ventilators and things like that, this is not coming out of random people anywhere in the world. This is the product of, of decades of science and I'd like to think that there will also be recognition that there's, there's insights to be gained from the scientific work that we do in business schools. So I hope that, you know, that we kind of arrest to some degree the uh, kind of anti-education approach that you know, some have taken. So that's a, a plus. I think that, um, that there'll be more innovation and that's a really good thing. Um, I think that, uh, well, those are the two, but maybe I, I can digress for a moment and just kind of use this wartime thing for a moment. You know, in the middle of war, World War II, at least temporarily, four or five things happened. One, business schools became more purposeful, at least the example of Harvard Business School. Um, two, they used that to change, you know, the students they admitted and the way they taught and what they taught. Um, they tolerated for a short period of time different leadership styles. Um, and they uh, basically... Uh, by adopting a whatever it takes approach, you know, they, they liberated themselves from certain types of tradition. So if, if as a result of this, like in that 70 year old period, that this gives rise to a burst of innovation in education, edu you know, innovation in not only pedagogy, which is online versus in person, but innovation in content, um, I think that would be a really healthy outcome. For example, um, as you know, we've been focusing on systems for the last eight years at the school. And you know, we have to understand how systems work and how they're interconnected and how you need to strategically intervene in specific points and maps are, you know, you know we've been saying that that was a big deal for a long, long time. If anything proves that the, that approach is important, it's what we're going through right now. So that a pandemic is not a pandemic. It's not a health problem. It's a health problem, an economic problem, a social problem, everything. Um, and so I think there, I hope that this will encourage others to, not just in business schools, but in other parts of curricula to realize that everything that we study tends to be under stress interconnected. So I'm, you know, an eternal optimist and I think that it will lead to, at least with our best selves, it'll lead to greater innovation uh, in content and pedagogy. And if that is combined with a, uh, 
a greater appreciation for the power of uh, science and evidence, that would be great. Lead us, uh, also lead to more interdisciplinary. Yes. The way you describe it, which would be, I think, a very positive outcome. Yeah, and, and that's the whole system's point, is that, uh, and, and maybe I'll send you, I did a piece for the HBR blog a few weeks before COVID became such a huge deal. I'll send you a copy of that or a link to that. And I've got this new piece that I'm still wrestling with on, on the lessons from World War II. So, uh, you know, and, and that's basically part of the story. Peter, for business leaders and for business school deans like yourself, what do you think are the two or three questions they should be asking themselves at this point as a look at the future? So let's not get to the future yet. You know, for me, there's three things I've got to do. The first is health and safety. You know, we all had health and safety reports that we ignored, right? Because quite honestly, it was the last thing that we worried about. Um, health and safety has become paramount. Secondly, how do you just do the things that you're paid to do? Um, and third is what's your purpose and how are you making sure that you're moving forward on your mission? So for me, um, and I hope for others, um, beyond the emergency in it, uh, of it all, we should be asking, why is it we're here? What is it we're paid to do? What is it we have a license? What gives us this license to operate in society? Um, and therefore, rather than being driven by external metrics like rankings and other things like that, what do I really have to do to justify my place in society? And if we all ask that question, um, then I think we might come up with some very interesting answers. In fairness, that question is really hard to ask in the middle of an emergency when you know, you're dealing with day-to-day -day issues that are boiling over, but it has to be asked. So today we had a school board meeting, that's our governance mechanism. And I started it around mission and innovation um, because I knew that most of the meeting would be dealt with issues around the uh, current uh, kind of shuttering of executive education, the major questions around, you know, what would happen to the class next year, applications yield, all that's going to drown out everything around mission and innovation. And so I started with let's talk about mission and innovation. And I have a kind of three elements of that plan. And I'm hoping that when we all get a chance to get a breath, take a breath, that that is going to be the, the thing that people who run educational institutions will be focusing on. Um, because with that, then you have, again, the license to, to do some things differently. Maybe let me ask you a question about society. Do you see society coming together more as a result of this forced isolation at home or do you see society sort of going apart? There's data that uh, was released over the last five, eight years that showed that in terms of inequality, that the global inequality was reducing, but the within country inequality was increasing. Uh, this is this elephant curve. Um, and so the answer to your question, Sumitra, is I don't know. But my guess is that what you're seeing is in a more localized way, there is more fellow feeling uh, than before. Uh, you know, expression used by by Adam Smith and also by our queen. Um, but I'm not sure that's translating into global fellow feeling, which is to say, are we coming together globally 
I don't see that right now. More locally, yes. And I'd say, you know, in places like the US, from what I'm reading, you know, there's more fractures there than not. So I think it's emanating from our kind of home studios and kind of home workplaces and home schools and home, you know, restaurants and everything that's happening in our home. So a number of people I know that I'm talking to, and, and you know, I don't know that my sample is representative. We're reaching out to a lot more people that we haven't talked to in a long time. So those kind of thin bonds of, of social capital are getting a little bit thicker. That's a good thing, um, but it's local. So are we building the, the bigger bonds? Not yet. Dan, I'll let you ask a concluding question in light of the time that we have left with Peter. You know, we've, we've covered, interestingly, the same amount of territory in 30 minutes with, uh, with Peter that we may have covered in an hour with others. And I talk fast, that's all. That's <laughs> a lot to do with the, the breadth of um, knowledge that you bring to this conversation, uh, Peter. Um, with, with the time that we have remaining, um, we, we'd like to um, end uh, just a few minutes later from now with a, with a request. Mm -hmm. but for now, what I'd like to do is offer you the opportunity to, to, to um, you know, point to Sumitra and I and say, this is the question I would have asked if I were sitting in your shoes. I wish you would have asked that one uh, question. And of course, if you could answer it, that would be great too. <laughs> okay. So maybe it's not a question, but it's an observation. Um, our sector, you know, called business education, um, we have largely acted as if we're all competitors. That's not to say that what you're doing and what Equus does and what AACSB does and other, there's, of course they're sharing and we, we evaluate, you know, one of those candidates for tenure. And of course, you know, as an academic body, we were connected. Um, what I'm not seeing yet is in the same way that the scientific community is coming together right now, you know, in the biggest moonshot projects that have ever been seen to try to increase the speed of, for example, vaccine experimentation by a factor of 10. Um, I just, we had a podcast at school today, you know, usually a vaccine will take 25 years to develop and they're trying to do it in 25 months or less. Um, the scientists are coming together to think about moonshots. We're still working separately. And I suppose, why is that? And what can we do about that? I had proposed to some of my colleagues at other schools before all this that we needed to work together on questions around climate. Um, and there was a lot of slow walking on that conversation. I think we've got to do the same thing here. Um, so we're combined, you know, we're working across, for example, the CDL network on, you know, CDL recovery. That's seven schools. Um, but you know, if the business school or the elite business schools of the world want to demonstrate that we in fact do have um, something special to add to the world, we're not going to keep doing that by all doing our own thing. And that's all I'm seeing, you know, I'm, we're all doing our own webinars and seminars and, you know, we're all asking as we should for support from our alumni, for our students who are going to find it hard to get jobs. Um, 
we're not joining forces. As, as I hope you got a glimpse of in November when you were with us in Lisbon, that's one of the things that we at GBSN are trying hard to do as it relates to the developing world. You know, that's just one piece yeah. of a larger um, puzzle. But I, I appreciate the, those remarks very much. Yeah. Uh, it's not aimed at you. You know, it's, I'm, we're part of the GNAM network. You know, we're, we're part of a bunch of different networks. But I think realistically right now, people in my role largely have their heads down because, you know, yeah. we're three weeks into this, two and a half, three weeks into this. Yeah. And I think, you know, the expression on a, on a plane is, you know, put your own, you know, mask on before you help others. And I think that's largely what we're trying to do. I think most of us, and I think I'm in a good place because I've got a great team. So our mask is largely on. Um, so I'm starting to think about, you know, who else do we need to work with in order to support recovery? I'd like to think right now, you know, um, and maybe this is a reflection of the UK, you know, we have a common enemy and that is this pandemic. And the UK has created a common hero and that's the NHS. So the public service ads at night on TV, I suppose in the daytime too, I just don't turn on the TV, um, say, stay home, save lives, protect the NHS. I mean, that's the slogan. I'd like to say when we come out of this and, and, and the kind of the whole health side of, of universities and, you know, they're seen as playing a big role in this first crisis, which is the health crisis. Will business schools be seen as playing a major role in the second part of the crisis, which is the economic crisis? And that's my hope that we have something to contribute. With great thanks and appreciation to Peter Tefano for his time, as well as Dan LeClaire and Sumitra Dutta for conducting that interview. Join us on the next episode of the Global Business School Network podcast as we're joined by GMAC President and CEO Sangeet Chawla. So something I suspect is going to reorder itself beyond the fact that everybody's going to have to go online. That they'll do. But once everybody goes online, I don't know if we've prepared ourselves for the real impact of what that actually ends up meaning it could be pretty fundamental. And one of the things that we are beginning to really try to monitor is to try to monitor what happens. The canary in the coal mine, by the way, I, I think it's going to be yield right now. Because right now we've made those uh, acceptance decisions in business education. The early response is going to be students who turn around and say, thank you very much, but this is not what I signed up for. To read an edited transcript of these and other interviews, please log on to gbsn.org forward slash world after COVID-19. Join the conversation online on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Use the hashtag world after COVID-19. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on the next episode. We look forward to your company next time. Take care.